Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're in this series in Psalm 119, which we've called, Oh, How I Love Your Law. This is something the psalmist says in this psalm. He loves God's law. He delights in God's law. He finds comfort in it. He finds direction in it. And for most of us, that probably seems a little bit strange. Laws are things that restrict us, that stop us from doing what we want. At least that's how we typically think about law. But that's not really the right way for us to be thinking about law, especially God's law. God's law revealed in his word is an expression of his character. It's an expression of his will for man. And because God's perfectly good and wise, God's law is the perfect guide for how we should live. So when you live by God's law, it brings delight and joy and comfort and direction like the psalmist says. Now this morning, we'll be looking at verses 73 to 80 of Psalm 119. And so we'll spend the first half of the message kind of thinking about what those verses are teaching. And then as we've been doing, since we're talking about God's law, we're going to broaden out to look at a principle from the rest of Scripture. And today it's going to be a couple of kind of big, broad, overarching ideas. And then we're going to look at how that specific law plays itself out in the logic of scripture, and when we get to the New Testament, what Jesus teaches and what Paul teaches as well. So that's the plan for this morning. Follow along as I read Psalm 119, starting in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Well, looking first of all at verse 73, we read, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So the psalmist says that God has made him. And the word fashioned is essentially the word established. So God created him, and God gave him his place in this world. It makes all the difference in the world to recognize that God made us. He's the creator. We are creatures. We are his creation. If you make something, then you own it. It's yours to do with what you want. You get to say what it's for. If you make, you know, some nice little wooden cabinet to put in your house, you're the one who gets to determine what it's going to be used for, because it's yours. You made it. And nobody else should come along and destroy it or damage it or misuse it or anything like that. And the same is true with us. God made us. We belong to him. He gets to say what we are for, what our goal is, why we're here. And he sets the rules for our existence. 
We learn in God's word that we are created for his glory. In Isaiah 43, God refers to everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There we have the connection between God's creating people and the goal that he has of his glory. That's why we're here. And God's law reveals to us how we should live in a way that brings him glory. So the psalmist says that God has established him or fashioned him. That, that tells us all that we have comes from God. We've been physically established by God, but we've also been spiritually established by God. Our standing as his people comes from God. We're justified. We're given right standing before God, not on the basis of anything that we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Now, how should we respond to that? We should be responding in gratitude. Gratitude would mean then joyfully obeying his law. So the psalmist asks here that God would give him understanding so that he can keep God's commandments. Verse 74 says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. So here the psalmist talks about the effect of his obedience on fellow believers, the godly, those who fear God. Think of how the Bible describes the people of God. We are a body, and a body is made up of lots of parts, but they're all interrelated. What affects one part affects the other part. If you drop a box on your toe, it's going to affect your mouth as you yell in pain. Um, The psalmist says that when one part of the body has hope in God's word, that brings joy to the rest of the body, because we rejoice with those who rejoice. In Psalm 66, the psalmist says, Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. As the people of God, we all have the same God. We have the same promises that God has given to us. We have the same mediator in Jesus Christ who represents us to God. We have the same covenant. So we have all these things in common, and what affects one of us affects the rest. So there's benefit to the rest of the body when we hear about why one person has hope in God's word. Their joy, their comfort, their encouragement becomes the joy and comfort and encouragement of all. And that's what Paul describes to the Romans as being mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's Romans 1. And every time that we hear of God's power and glory, in someone's life. God is magnified because he's seen more clearly by more people. And so God is glorified and we are living out his purpose. In verse 75, the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, it's helpful to note here the word rules is the word judgments. It's God's decisions that he makes, his providential acts. And everything that God decides is righteous because God's perfectly just. He always does what is right, and that includes all of his decisions that affect us. So also, God always acts for our good, not what we think is our good, but what he knows in his infinite wisdom is for our good. 
So God, in the end, punishes the wicked and he corrects his children. And as his children, even though we actually deserve punishment, instead we receive correction. God is better to us than we deserve. That's his grace and his mercy. In Ezra chapter 9, God's people have been in a position where they're experiencing his correction. And Ezra says this, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, you see, God has punished us less than we deserve. He is merciful and gracious toward us. And notice, too, that the psalmist says that God has afflicted him in faithfulness. In other words, God afflicts him because he is faithful. And the psalmist trusts him in the affliction, not despite the affliction. Just like a parent corrects a child because he loves him, So God afflicts his children for their good because he loves them. You might remember the story of Eli and his sons. The way the text tells the story, basically Eli never corrected his kids, his sons. And they turned out terrible and it destroyed his family. Well, God is no Eli. He loves us too much to ignore the need for correction in our lives. And since God always does what is right, and his correction is always for our good, we need to trust him. Now, when, when you're in the middle of the correction, the benefit is in the future. Right? You're not enjoying it in the moment. The benefit is, is in the future. So when in the present we don't see the good that's in it, we need to live by faith, not by our feelings. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The psalmist continues speaking then of God's providential hand in his life in verse 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So the God who afflicted him now comforts him. The same hand that brought correction now brings comfort. Just like when you've had to spank a child and then you give them a hug. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And the reason for this is that both things, the correction and the comfort, are motivated by love. God's love drives both his correction and his comfort. And the psalmist here is asking for God to comfort him according to his promises. The promises that God has given are the reason that the psalmist is able to ask for comfort. If God had not promised it, then this would be a pretty presumptuous request. 
And the application here, obviously, is that we need to know God's word. We've got to know what his promises are. The psalmist knows God's promises. That's why he's able to ask God to fulfill those promises to him. When you know what God has promised, then you can appeal to him based on those promises. And he desires to give you the comfort that he's promised. Verse 77 says, Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Now, mercy is part of the character of God. When God reveals who he is, that's part of how he describes himself. He's merciful. And his character is perfect. But mercy is not the only part of God's character. God is also just. He always does what is right. So God is not merciful to every person in every situation to the greatest degree. If he was, then he would never act on his justice. So his mercy is regulated by his wisdom. He knows when to be merciful and how merciful to be. The psalmist says here that God's law is his delight, but he also asks for mercy. The fact that he asks for mercy means he knows he deserves punishment. And he knows he deserves punishment because he's broken God's law. So he delights in God's law, but he's also broken God's law. If you truly delight in God's law, and you learn it and you know it, then you'll be sensitive to the fact that you've broken it. You'll be sensitive to how you've failed. And that's why the psalmist here asks for God's mercy. And we see that it's God's mercy that allows us to live. We deserve death, but God in his mercy allows us to live. The very fact that you are right now breathing and continuing to exist is due to God's mercy. None of us deserve to live. We've all sinned against God. But not only does God patiently delay death so that we might live and respond to his calls for repentance. He also, in his grace and mercy, grants us new life, spiritual life, eternal life, based on the atonement that Christ provided in our place. And so the psalmist says, let your mercy come to me that I may live. In verse 78 then, The psalmist says, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Who are the insolent? They're the proud, those opposed to God and his people. What does pride do in someone's life? It makes them unwilling to submit to someone else's authority. The insolent are unwilling to submit to God. They reject his kingship. And since they reject him as king, they reject the king's law. They refuse to obey. So the psalmist says here, he's praying that the insolent who refuse God's law will be put to shame. In other words, he's praying that they would be confounded, that their plans would fail. Now, why does he pray this? From other places in scripture, we can kind of answer that. First, he prays this so that they would seek God. Psalm 83, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. If they come to see that their way of life is not the best way to live, it may be that they turn to God. 
Second, he prays this so that he can serve God himself more freely, more faithfully. If you look ahead in Psalm 119 to verse 134, you would read this. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. There are things that God commands us to do that sometimes the wicked, the insolent, the proud can prevent us from doing. So for example, God commands us to gather with his people. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But if a wicked ruler puts a Christian in jail, then the Christian is prevented from obeying that part of God's law. It's not his fault, but he's prevented from obeying because of the act of the insolent. And so here, The prayer is that their plans would be frustrated. Their plans would be confounded. Because when that happens, then the psalmist is able to more freely and faithfully obey God and serve him himself. Now the plans of the wicked, the insolent, are no threat to God. In Psalm 37 we read, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The psalmist is committed to God's law and he asks God to deal with the insolent. Then in verse 79 we read, Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Now notice how the godly are described here. they got two characteristics. Number one, they fear God. And number two, they know his testimonies. And both of these are necessary. If you have fear of God, but you don't have knowledge, then you simply have a a superstitious religious passion. You fear God, but you don't know anything about him. But if you have knowledge and no fear of God, then you're going to have an arrogant presumption about your standing before him. Instead, knowledge has to shape and direct our fear of God. And our fear of God needs to give perspective to our knowledge of him. The two together provide a proper godly approach to God. So Charles Spurgeon writes, when fearing and knowing walk hand in hand, they cause men to be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And the psalmist's desire is that the godly would turn to him rather than turning away from him or turning to the wicked. Now, the wicked, the insolent, would want to see him isolated and abandoned by his companions. But the psalmist has a desire for the fellowship and friendship of the godly. So, who is it that you want to turn to you? Whose favor are you seeking? Whose approval do you long for? Toward whom is your heart oriented? Do you say, like the psalmist, let those who fear you turn to me? And then finally, verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. What's a blameless heart? Well, that word blameless literally means sound or whole or healthy. A sound or whole heart is one that has experienced the reality of grace. It's not, it's not hypocritical. It's not just carrying out its duty and doing you know, obedience to the law because it thinks that somehow that's going to, t- to, to, to earn God's favor. It, this is a heart that has experienced the reality of grace. It's a heart that has 
dominion over its affections. The sound heart rules over its emotions rather than the other way around. And it's a, it's a whole or complete heart, which means we're talking about it ruling the affections of every area of life. Since God's law speaks to every area of life, a sound heart is one that has experienced grace and has responded in joyful obedience from the heart to God's law in every area of life. Psalm 37 verse 31 says, The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. If God's law is lodged in your heart, then you're able to walk securely, not put to shame. You can live in a way that aligns with God's law, God's intent. You can flourish in the place that God has put you. A sound, healthy heart is one that has God's law written on it. And that leads to the truly good life as God has designed it. Well, as we've gone through those verses this morning, we've talked about God's law as guiding the godly in the best way to live. Our principle this morning that we want to see is this. God's law is love codified. God's law is love codified. Now, when we say love codified, what do we mean? What we mean is this. The law code, all the different regulations of the law, puts into concrete form what love looks like. Love is one of those words that can be squishy. It can mean different things to different people. So when the Bible says that we should love God, what does that mean? When the Bible says we should love our neighbor, what does that look like? The law answers that question. The law codifies love. It demonstrates what love looks like, put into action in every area of life. The law answers the question of authority. Who's in charge? The one who issues the law is the one who has the authority. So will we have theonomy, God's law, or will we have autonomy, human self-rule? And God's love, we need to remember, is particular It's specific. God loves those things that are truly good, those things that are lovely. And since God's love is particular, his law is particular. It's specific. We have a very specific ethical standard that we find in God's law. God shows us specifically, particularly, how we are to live. The law codes that God gives are specific guidelines for how we are to live. Now, in terms of a case law this morning, a specific law for us to look at as an example, I want to show you two Old Testament passages that give a kind of big overarching law that governs all the other laws. And we're going to look at those two, two different passages in the Old Testament, and then I want to take you to two passages in the New Testament that will take this case law and kind of expound on it for us. So first turn to Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to have you turn to these four passages this morning. We won't take a real long time in any one of them. But Leviticus 19, and we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 first, then verses 33 and 34. Leviticus 19. Now in this text, 
God is giving his people instructions about holiness, how to live righteously, how to live a godly life. And I want you to take a look at what God says in Leviticus 19, first of all, in verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you are to love your neighbor as yourself because you would want to be treated justly yourself. Now look at verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we saw earlier that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Now we see that we are to love the stranger as yourself. Why? Because you too were a stranger until God redeemed you. Okay, so love your neighbor, love the stranger as yourself. Next passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Go over a couple of books. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have one more layer to add here. So you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to love the stranger as yourself. And now in Deuteronomy 6, we find one more command to love that is even more foundational. Deuteronomy 6, this should sound really familiar, and look with me at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So love your neighbor, love the stranger, and here we see love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Now these are the foundational commands of the law. We are, notice this, commanded to love. This is not optional. If you are a Christian, you must love God. You must love your neighbor and you must love the stranger. The question is, what does love look like? If we put love into action, what form does that take in real life? And the rest of the law spells it out for us. First, the Ten Commandments give us the basic vision for what loving God and loving others looks like. Second, the ceremonial laws, the festivals, the sacrifices, all of that, forecasted or foreshadowed what love would look like in history. When Jesus came as the one who would show perfect love to God and others, what was it that Jesus would accomplish? Well, the ceremonial law pictures it for us. And then third, all the case laws. The case laws give us authoritative examples or illustrations of what love looks like in the daily life of people. What does love to God and others demand of us? The case laws show us. Well, what about when someone violates the laws of love? The case laws show us how to bring restoration and restitution. And these case laws are particular. They are specific because God's love is specific and particular. Now, again, what does love look like? It looks like obedience to God's commands. So now I want to jump to the New Testament. And first I want you to see what Jesus does with these principles. So turn to Matthew 22. 
Matthew chapter 22. Here we've got these principles from the Old Testament law. What is Jesus going to do with them? Is Jesus going to set them aside? Does Jesus adjust them? Does Jesus relax them? What does Jesus teach his followers about this? Okay, so look at Matthew 22 with me, and we're going to start in verse 34. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is tested here by a lawyer. The lawyer is asking what he thinks is a difficult question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? But Jesus has an easy answer. And by the way, Jesus is able to give an easy answer because he has such a good understanding of the law. And that should key us in that what he says here is really important if we want to know how to understand the law. Jesus says that the greatest command is to love God. And the second command is love others. Why is loving God the greatest command? Well, we should love God because he's the creator. We saw that already this morning. And because he's the Lord, he's the king. Now, what does that love look like? Well, it looks like obedience to his commands. And one of his commands is loving others, which Jesus says is the second greatest command. But why is this the greatest command? To love God with all your heart, heart, soul, and mind. Jesus says, when you put these two commands together, love God and love others, all the rest of the law hangs on these two. Think about the logic of this. This must mean then that to obey these two commands, love God and love others, is to obey the entire law. Or to put it the other way around, if you obey all the commands of the law, then you are loving God and loving others. And that tells us then how we should interpret the rest of the law. The rest of the law is an explanation for us of what it looks like to love God and love others. The rest of the law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the case laws, all of that is the particularization of these two commands, to love God and love others. Listen to what Paul says when he writes to the Romans. This isn't the other passage I'm going to have you turn to, but just listen to what he says here. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see that? Love is the fulfillment of the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So notice what Paul does there. He lists several of the Ten Commandments from the second part of the Ten Commandments. 
And he says that they are summarized in the command to love your neighbor. In other words, these samples that he gives from the Ten Commandments are particularizations, specific examples of what the command to love your neighbor looks like. And by the way, the same thing would be true with the rest of the Ten Commandments as well. Like if you think of the first several of the Ten Commandments, things like have no other gods, don't worship idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, those are specific examples of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So Jesus can say that the command to love God with all your heart is the greatest command, and the command to love your neighbor is second because those two are foundational to all the rest. All the rest of the law is a specific working out of those two commands. Or, another way to say that, as our principal says this morning, God's law is love codified. Love God, love others, put into specific codes of law. Okay, one more passage this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. This is a familiar passage, but I'm hoping that you might see it in a little bit of a new light this morning. Throughout this letter to the Galatians, Paul has been correcting the misuse of the law. The law, Paul says, is not a means to salvation. There are some who are teaching in these churches that it is a means to salvation. Paul is correcting that. He's, He's adamant about it. The law is not a means of salvation. No, the law shows us what holiness is. It shows us how we've failed. But keeping the law will never be a means of salvation, Paul says, because none of us can actually keep the law perfectly. At the same time, we are to obey it because it shows us God's will. And listen to what he says now, beginning in Galatians 5 and verse 13. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So Paul says here, you were called to live in freedom, not in the flesh. He says that love fulfills the law The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Pick it up in verse 16 now. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we just saw Paul say, live in freedom, not in the flesh. Now he says, walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, under the law here means the judgment or condemnation of the law. If you're living by the spirit, Paul is saying, then you won't be doing anything for which the law would condemn you. 
You're not under the law's condemnation. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now those things that Paul has just listed there are the very things that are against God's law. Don't do those things, Paul says. If you're doing those things, then you're obeying the flesh, not the spirit. And so you are under the law. You are under the condemnation of the law if you're doing those things. Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the spirit. In other words, if you are walking by the Spirit, here's the fruit that will be evident in your life. And what's the very first one? Love. You see? Love God and love others. The two greatest commandments. And if you're walking by the Spirit, then you're walking in love. You're obeying God's command not under the condemnation of the law because you're not disobeying the law. Instead, you're obeying it. You're loving God. You're loving others. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me read the fruit of the Spirit again, but this time I won't interrupt the thought. I'll let Paul finish his description. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Do you get it? There's no law against those things because those things are the very fulfillment of what the law has always been saying. Love God and love others. Paul is saying that walking by the Spirit is the same thing as obeying God's law. They're both defined by love. Love God, love others. That's walking by the Spirit. That's obeying God's law. God's law is love codified. Now, if we rightly understand both Jesus and Paul, we can't help but uphold the law of God. They don't downplay the importance of God's law. What they battle against is the idea that salvation can be obtained by law-keeping. But they uphold and reinforce the importance of these two commands that undergird the whole law, love God and love others. And this is all completely consistent with what we saw the psalmist teaching us this morning about God's law. God is our creator. So we should love him by obeying his commands. God is our faithful afflictor. We should trust him because he's a loving father. God is the one who gives us mercy and comfort. And these promises are given in his word, his law. And the psalmist teaches us then to have our heart on the side of the godly, not the insolent. We should desire to have the godly as our companions. And we should seek to have a sound heart. 
a complete and healthy heart that is wholly devoted to keeping God's law, meaning it's wholly given over to loving God and loving others. That's walking by the Spirit. That's keeping God's law. God's law is love codified. Join me in prayer. Lord, this morning as we've listened to your word, I I pray that your spirit would be teaching us, that we would understand the consistency of the law that you have given and love. That we would understand that that law is not opposed to love. Law is, is actually the expression of what loving God and loving others looks like. If we want to know how to love God and love others, it means obeying your commands. That's what it looks like in real life. You've given us such a a practical teaching of how to love. I pray that we would pay attention to it, that we would learn it, that we would walk by the Spirit, that we would walk in obedience to your word. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.